Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. This is the Advent season where we're looking forward to celebrating the day and the moment that Jesus Christ arrived on this earth. And God, our God, the living God, became like us. And that is amazing to think about. It's hard to understand. And he came to life, and he's still alive because he is God. He died for us, gave up his life, resurrected. We've heard the entire story this morning. And we're looking forward to celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ and uh, bringing to mind all that he has done for us. Advent's a great, great season, and we love it. Out in our uh, foyer, we have a new nativity scene. If you get a moment, just take a look up the stairs, and uh, we're blessed. That was a gift to the church, and we're grateful for it, and we really appreciate people who love their church. It's a just a reminder to us when we look up and see the Christ child about this season of anticipation, looking forward to celebrate God with us, God entering the world, taking on human flesh. Uh, we're going to be touching on this Christmas story this morning from the book of Hebrews. I started in the book of Hebrews last week. We've been reading through it together. And again, just a reminder if you're visiting with us, Look at your bulletin on the back. There is, a, there is a little plan, a reading plan for the week. We've been reading through the entire Bible this year. It's almost to the end. And if you've been following along, isn't that a great thing? You'll be through the Bible. We've gone through it together. We've been looking at uh, Old Testament, New Testament, some of the Psalms. And the book of Hebrews has been the past couple of weeks it might not be the traditional Christmas text, but Jesus becoming human, Jesus coming to this earth, it's prominently addressed in this letter uh, to the Hebrews. Now, last week I gave a brief introduction, and I'm just going to give a really brief review, very brief of this uh, letter to the Hebrews. There's no author attribution. We really don't know for sure who wrote it. There isn't any conclusive evidence that points to a particular person. So I refer to the person as the writer or the author. In the contents of this letter, it indicates that it was directed to people who were primarily Hebrew or Jewish. And how do we know that? It's full of things that they would have understood direct Old Testament quotes, about 30 of them, and many references, allusions, hints, suggestions about what was in the Old Testament, the ceremonies, and the life of a good Jew. So they would have readily identified with it and understood it. Remember, it's a letter. It was written to someone at a particular time and a particular place, and that was back in the first century. These 
uh, Hebrew people who had come to Christ, they were Jewish Christians. And it may be that they were slipping away. So the writer was on a mission, on a mission to present Jesus, the new covenant, and the new covenant that Jesus established, which was and is exceedingly, exceptionally, extremely, eminently superior to the old covenant. And this mission seemed to be the heart of the writer and likely because people were straying, they were drifting, as I talked about last week, drifting away from their faith, drifting away from the anchor, Jesus. So there was the mission of the letter to present the new covenant and how Jesus is far superior to what was in the old and all that sacrificial system. And there's also a sub-theme throughout the letter. Stay with Jesus. Hold on. Hold on. And we'll hear some verses this morning in the letter that continue to press that. Hold on. Jesus is the one and only way. He's the one and only Savior. The letter opened declaring that God spoke to the People in times passed through the prophets. It was a point to the old, but then said, now we have Jesus. Jesus is the one who God is speaking through. And then in a few short sentences at the top of that letter in the open, the gospels laid out, tells us Jesus is God. He's the creator of everything. He has all of God's glory. Everything is sustained and held together by him. He's provided for us purification from sin. Again, we don't need any more sacrifices because Jesus' sacrificial death paid it all. And yet he's alive. It says he is alive and that he sits at the right hand of majesty on high. He sits at the right hand of God. Jesus, our creator, savior, all of that. And about four sentences at the opening of this letter. Brilliant, brilliant writer of this letter. Then interestingly, it goes right into Uh, explaining that Jesus is greater than angels. And this seems a little odd. It seems curious. It's a strange way to open a letter. And in chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, there's not one or two or three or four references to Jesus being greater than angels, but eight, eight. And they're direct references to the Old Testament. Jesus is not an angel. He's far greater. It just seems so strange. Why is that? Well, there was in the early church those who denied that Jesus was divine. They denied that Jesus was God. So here at the opening of this letter, it's stated over and over and over again. Jesus is God. And others who disputed this, they said, Perhaps maybe he's an angel. Maybe he's a spirit or something. And that false teaching prevailed into the early church. In the fourth century, there was a man named Arius, and Arius was famous for denying Jesus, denying that Jesus was God. He taught that Jesus was created by God. 
And now, does any of that go on today? Is that relevant for today? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is relevant. That false teaching that Jesus is not divine continues. Really, all you have to do is look at the culture around you, and they'll deny that Jesus is God. But beyond that, in many religions, Jesus is not God. Islam says that Jesus is a prophet, but he's not divine. He's not God. And I'm guessing that some of you may have had some very polite and very well-meaning people knock on your door. And they will tell you all about their Jesus. And that's the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they teach that Jesus was a created being, that Jesus is not God. So this continues. This continues to this day. These teachings that Jesus is not God. And that's not my Jesus. My Jesus is God. They're teaching that Jesus was created, that he's some kind of spirit being. That is a false teaching. That is not the truth. Denying that Jesus is God, it continues. It dates back to the earliest earliest days of Christianity continues on today. Something that we have to be careful of. What's the truth? The truth is Jesus is fully God. And in this letter to the Hebrews, after making that point at the open and then really hammering away at it through the first chapter and uh, the beginning of the second chapter, Jesus is greater than an angel. He's high above these angels. He's not a created being or a created spirit being like them. The writer then uh, encourages, stick with Jesus. Don't drift from him. Stay with him. And then there's a change in focus at about the middle of chapter 2. And another attribute of Jesus begins to be discussed here in this letter. And what is that attribute? Jesus is fully human. Now, again, whoever wrote this, this writer is brilliant. By the second chapter, verse number nine, that's 23 verses into this letter. And I know there were no chapters and verses when this letter was written. What's my point? In a few short paragraphs, the gospel's laid out. There's a strong point made that Jesus is fully God, and now Jesus is fully human. The linchpins of Christianity are laid out there by this brilliant writer in short order, telling us all about Jesus in the the new covenant. He died, he's alive, he's higher than all these other angelic creatures, he is God. But then Jesus did something special, something amazing. He became like us. He became human. And that's the Christmas story. Jesus, our God, our creator, he took on flesh and blood. He took on skin and bones. He became like us. And he came to this earth the same way that we did. Every single one of us, born of a woman, And that's what Jesus did. He didn't come in some spectacular way. He wasn't created into a human somewhere in heaven and dropped down. He became human just like we did, 
born of a woman. He's fully God. He is fully human. And that Christmas reference first mentioned in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, and it says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. But there's even more detail given at the end of the chapter, and I'd like to read that this morning. At the end of chapter two in this letter to the Hebrews, verses 14 to 18, it's stated emphatically about Jesus becoming a man. It reads this way. Since the children, and the children there is a reference to humans. The children of God, they're talked about earlier in that chapter, but it's a reference to us humans. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, a reference to Jesus, and that's from verse 11. If you just read back there, it mentions his name. He, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Again, people. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. This is an amazing passage. It's an amazing truth presented by the writer of this letter. It's not only the Christmas story that Jesus became fully human in every single way, but there's also in here the Easter story. By death, by death, Jesus breaks the power of death. He breaks the power of the devil. And he made atonement, purification for our sins. He paid the price for the sins of every person. Jesus became human. That's the Christmas story. Why? What is the purpose? What's the purpose of Christmas? In verse number 17, it read, he became fully human to win victory over sin. There's the purpose. Jesus came to earth to win victory over sin and over death for us. In a word, he was born to die. It's hard to imagine, hard to understand. That's the purpose that he came to this earth for. And in dying, Jesus brought this new covenant, a new way, a new order of things. The old order was done away with. No more animal sacrifice. No more offerings for sin. No more lambs had to be brought to the priests to be uh, sacrificed. Jesus was and Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world. So he surpasses, he's superior, he is above all of the old covenant. And then the writer begins to really weave that thread of the superiority to the old covenant. Now in chapters three and chapters four, the remainder of the letter. And I've just finished chapter two. I want to read the opening of chapter three. It begins with therefore. So remember what we read. 
Remember what we read at the end of chapter 2 there about Jesus, the reason that he became fully human, to die, to win for us, victory over sin, death, and hell. And then chapter 3 begins, Hebrews 3, 1, Therefore, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly. There it is again, hold on. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So the writer now takes a little turn in the topic, begins to write about two houses, gives us an example, gives us an image, an image of two houses to compare and perhaps contrast Moses' house versus Jesus' house. And the point here is made very plainly. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. So again, this theme of the new covenant greater than the old covenant, this writer is going to continue and starting to really drive it home. After the two chapters about the angels and Jesus better, now it's Moses, and it's going to go on about the priests and sacrifices and all of it, that Jesus is so much better. And the image here is two houses, Moses' house and Jesus' house. And Jesus is found to be worthy of greater honor. Why? Because Jesus is the builder, it says. He is the builder of the house. And the builder has greater honor than the house itself. Now, what are these houses? Now, first, let's look at Moses. Now, Moses, it says, was faithful in all God's house. God had a house. Now, this could be uh, referred to as a people, a household, if you will, a people. And Moses was over a people. He was faithful in leading those people. But it could also be a reference to a physical structure, the idea that there's a builder and these words about building and gives you the idea that perhaps this image ought to be a physical structure. And was there a physical structure Moses had to deal with? Yes, there was a physical structure, God's house. It was called uh, the tabernacle. Moses had to put it together. God was the designer. God gave him the blueprint. God told him exactly what to do. And you can read all about that in Exodus uh, chapters 23 forward. When you get to Exodus chapter 40, there's a great summary of this tabernacle that Moses had to deal with, the house, if you will, that he had to build. He had to put together or assemble for God. Moses set up the tabernacle, and he had to put in it what was prescribed by God. He put in the Ark of the Covenant, and that was in the front, 
in a room that was secluded from the rest. It was called the inner place or the holy of holies. There was a curtain separating that with a second room and outside of that room, it was called the holy place. There was a table, table for some bread that would be presented to the Lord and opposite the table, there was a lampstand and on that lampstand, there was to be seven oil lamps that would be a burning. And in the middle between these two items, the table and the lampstand, there was an altar, an altar of incense so that this incense would be rising up before God. And these two rooms were covered. And then outside of those two rooms, there was a basin or a bronze laver, it was called. So the priests could wash and there was another altar. And that altar on the outside was to burn sacrifices. Of course, it had to be on the outside. You wouldn't want to cover it up if you were starting fires all the time. Now Moses took care of all of this. Moses had to assemble it like God told him. He was faithful to build it. He was faithful to take care of it as God instructed. And now let's compare that with what the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus' house. Jesus' house is better. Jesus' house is greater than Moses' house. Let's look at some of the reasons why Jesus' house would be greater. First, it says Jesus he was the builder. He's the architect, the designer, the engineer, the builder. He did everything. And this is another confirmation here that Jesus is God. The word here in the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the builder. And it goes on to say, God is the builder of everything. Right there, there's an equating of Jesus and God. Jesus is the builder. God's the builder of everything. Jesus is God. So this is another, it's just another brilliant line by this writer conclusively telling us Jesus is God. He's the builder of all. He's the sustainer of all. And secondly, it said, we are his house. This is, this is a great thing. It's an amazing thing. We, we, the, the writer of Hebrews wrote down, referring to all of his first readers and really down to us who would call ourselves Christians because it says, we holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Do you share in a heavenly calling? Do you have a heavenly calling? This is what the writer said. We who share in the heavenly calling are God's House, we are this house. Are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are your thoughts fixed on Jesus? Like the writer says, do you have a heavenly calling? What's a heavenly calling? A heavenly calling is having an eternal outlook, an eternal perspective. You know, sure, there's things to pay attention to in this life. You didn't just get up and arrive here without thinking about a few things, right? You've got to care about a few things putting on clothes and getting in a vehicle, finding transportation, getting here. Of course, there's cares in this world and in this life. But do you have a greater focus? Do you have a greater aim on what is beyond the natural life? Confident of what is to come in eternity. 
This is precisely why the author writes, we are his house when we hold firm confidently to the hope in which we have in glory. What is the hope we have in glory? It's not temporary. It certainly isn't a vehicle in the garage. It isn't a house that if you put your hope in a house or a job or something on this earth, it's going to be a false hope. It's going to be a temporary hope. It's going to be a hope that eventually fades away. It's not going to be a hope in which you can glory. There is nothing lasting in this temporary world. Nothing in the natural. There is no real and lasting hope. But if you have a life yielded to Jesus Christ, now that's eternal. That's eternal. Why? Because he bought you with his life. Our salvation, the winning over of death, that was guaranteed by the sacrifice that Jesus made. And if you've taken hold of that, now you've got a hope in glory. You have a hope that's eternal. You have a heavenly calling. So in, in comparison to the house of Moses, Jesus' house is not a reference to a natural structure at all. It's an eternal house. And it's comprised of souls who have received eternal life through Jesus Christ. And then another amazing thing, Jesus shares in his house. He sees the builder of the house and he's over the house, the writer told us. But Jesus is also a part of the house. He is also one of the members. He shares in it. How is that? Christmas. That's how Jesus shares in the house, Christmas. He came to the earth and he took on human flesh. Jesus became like us. He became human. And because he became human, he experienced the human condition. He was human in every way, fully human, the writer wrote. So he experienced what we experience, warm days, but cold days. He experienced good times and bad times. He had highs and lows. He had laughter and he had tears. He had satisfaction and disappointment, all the things that we as humans experience. He shares in this house. He shares in this house, though he is the builder and though he is over it. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who lives with their builder? Isn't that an amazing thing that our builder would live with us? Who lives with their builder? Now, I've never built a house. I've hired a contractor from time to time. And I'll just say, I've been disappointed. Now, I don't even want to have to go through building a house. I've heard many stories. Oh, yeah, really? We moved in the house. You know, we had our final walkthrough. I pointed out that crack over there. And, you know, the basement's got a little leak over there. And I'm calling this builder. And I'm calling him. And all I get is voicemail. Nothing's going to get fixed. What happened to the builder? When my parents had to move because... I-94 came through St. Clair Shores, took their house. So they had to find a place to live. All the homes were condemned, you know, taken over because the freeway's coming through. 
My mother, six children, seventh on the way. Her and my father find a builder. And he dug them a basement, and then he disappeared. Now, if you're a builder in the house, I'm sure you're a reputable, fine builder. But some have disappointed. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He has taken on the human condition. He understands what it's like to be one of us. He is a partaker in the house with us. He can sympathize with our issues. And yet there's one important and crucial difference between Jesus who's over the house and the builder of the house. One important crucial difference between Jesus and Moses or Jesus and every other human. And that is Jesus, though he became human, he's without sin. He never sinned. He suffered temptation, yes, and we read that. Yes, he was tempted, but he did not yield to it. So Jesus is human. He's part of the house, but he's divine. He's fully God, sinless. And so he rightly can be over the house. He's our builder. He's over us, always with us for eternity. And then in Jesus' house, there's something Moses couldn't offer. After presenting this idea of the two houses, introducing the image of Moses and Jesus and the houses, this writer of Hebrews now begins to write about something that the people of Moses' time could have received but didn't, and the people of Jesus' time could receive and did. It says over and over, the end of chapter 3, all of chapter 4, that the people of Moses, they could have received something upon entering, but they didn't. As a matter of fact, God said, you're not even going to be able to enter. Why? Because they didn't believe They did not believe. They did not hold firmly to their faith or their confidence in God. And repeatedly, multiple times it says, they could not enter, they could not enter, they could not enter, and they missed out on something. Now, what did they miss out on? What am I talking about? What did they miss? It says they missed out on rest. Resting in God their savior. The people of Moses' time were disobedient. They turned their backs on God, though God took them by the hand, brought them out of Egypt with many miracles. The people still turned their back on God, did not believe him. And God said, you shall not enter my rest. But in Jesus' house, there's rest. There is rest in the house. No more sacrifices. No more priests laboring with daily sacrifices. Read the Old Testament. Read that book of Exodus. Find out how many sacrifices they had to make daily. Daily, every day. When there was a new moon, then it was twice a day. 
And if a person sinned, they had to bring a sacrifice. All of that is done away with Jesus. With Jesus, the, the burden of that has been taken care of because he gave his life for sin. It's not by some work that we could do. It's by faith that we receive the sacrifice of Jesus. See, Jesus said this. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my burden or my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. There's the difference. There was no rest for a soul in Moses' time and with his people. But this is a promise of Jesus. You can find rest for your souls. The promise of Jesus is what this Hebrews writer is hammering away at. And let's see how this writer makes the point at the close of chapter 3 and open of chapter 4. Just a few verses, the end of chapter 3 and a few verses into chapter 4, they read this way. So we see that they were not able to enter. And this is the people of Moses' time. They were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. Have you entered that rest this morning? Have you taken on Jesus as your savior and as your rest? Jesus is the builder and the overseer of the house. He introduced his people to a rest which is eternal and it remains and it abides forever. There's no earning it. There is no working to be able to gain it. There's no merit that you have that you can receive it. There is no striving for it that says, now you've got it. Jesus' sacrifice by faith is what saves us from death, hell, and the grave. Jesus offered by his grace his life, and it's received by believing, by faith alone. This is his superiority over Moses' house. Remember the description of the house that Moses was responsible for. Remember, I said there's altars, and there's tables, and there's basin, and there's a lampstand, but there's no place to rest. Go read that description in Exodus chapter 40. See if you can find about the chairs or the places they sat down to relax. It's not there. It's because it was a constant, ongoing effort. No chairs. See, Jesus offers rest. He says, come into my house. Come on in. Come on in and sit down, right? He, his house is going to be a place of rest. It is a place of rest where we can relax, 
confident that Jesus has offered us rest. His house is open to all. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, it says, He died. And by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everybody. Now I want to ask you, who does that leave out? Doesn't leave out me. Doesn't leave out you. Doesn't leave out anyone. He tasted death for everybody. Jesus forgives all who would genuinely come to him repent of their sins. Say, I believe what you've done. I believe that you have died for my sin and I will receive that by faith. It's not some good work. These other religions like Islam and Jehovah's Witness, they mix in this idea that you can earn your salvation. As a matter of fact, there's no hope in that at all. There's no rest in that at all. There's sort of a scale going on in those religions and other religions that say, well, you, you need to do so many good works. You need to do so much. And if at the end of the life, the scale hasn't, if it hasn't gone your way, well, God's going to reject you. Not my Jesus, not my Jesus. You know, because of Christmas and his coming to this earth, he has given us an open invitation an open invitation to enter his house and receive his rest because he has broken the power of death by giving his life. We celebrate that this morning. We celebrate that this morning at our time of communion. And what do we say often when we're talking about communion? We say, we're going to sit down at the table we're going to sit down because Jesus' house is a house of rest. I want to ask our deacons and elders if you would prepare to serve us. And if you're visiting with us, our communion is open to all who have received Jesus Christ, who have received his rest. If you, by faith, call on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're welcome to receive the bread and the cup with us this morning. But please, hold the bread until everyone receives it. We'll bless it and we'll eat it together. And likewise with the cup. And if you have small children, just please refrain from them receiving and don't put something on them they can't understand. Now as you receive this bread, I want to make one last comparison to Moses, and to Jesus. This communion, this meal that we share in is a memorial meal. And it is in fulfillment of another meal, a meal that was called the Passover. The Passover meal was a memorial of God's salvation. It was given to Moses and Moses was told to celebrate this in honor of God 
saving the people from Egypt. But the very first night, the very first Passover meal, the angel of death was coming through Egypt. And those who were partaking of the Passover meal, they were given instructions so that the angel of death would pass over them. Thus the name, the Passover. When you read through the book of Exodus and you get to Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, it tells us how Moses was instructed to eat the Passover meal. It said, Moses, tuck your cloak into your belt, keep your sandals on, keep your staff in your hand and eat it in haste. Eat it in haste. In other words, eat and run. Are we going to eat and run? Are we going to eat in haste? No. See, here at the communion supper, this is not something we're going to eat in haste. We're going to eat it in rest. We're going to sit down at the Lord's table. We're not going to tuck our belt in or tuck our cloak into our belt and make sure our staff is in our hand and our sandals are on so we can run. No, Jesus offers rest, rest in him.